The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, September 12th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Update on Governor, then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's official portrait. This is from the San Francisco Chronicle. Turns out Arnold Schwarzenegger, he got painted early on in his term. He was going to have a lapel pin of himself wearing his wife's picture, Maria Shriver's picture. Well, she's still his wife, but they're, let's say, estranged because of love child and other things. Here, let me quote from the paper, according to Sacramento sources, the original painting was commissioned by the former governor a number of years ago while he was still in office and while his TV journalist wife was still believed to be near and dear to his heart. Sources tell us the painting, which sat for years in Schwarzenegger's production office, originally featured, like I said, that lapel pin, and it's been covered over with a blue smudge of paint. If you want to check out the picture, it's really inartfully done. So I guess I could just hear Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, Consider that a divorce. Right? Right? Because that's what he said in Total Recall. Consider that a divorce. You have been divorced. And I have asked you to consider that. I feel you are only examining this issue of divorce on a very surface level. You are not deeply pondering the implications of that and what it portends for matrimonial longevity. I guess you can say I have gone from pumping iron to dumping cyan. Insofar as Maria is part of the Kennedy family, though she now lives in California. I can't really do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impersonation, but I love trying to. You want to hear how it originally sounds? You're probably saying, Mike, that's spot on and uncanny. Consider that a divorce. Well, here's the original clip from Total Recall. Consider that a divorce. Doesn't sound good, but doesn't sound like I was doing it. All right. In the spiel, Ira Glass dances. Although, you know how sometimes... When people are being pretentious, they call dance movement. Maybe movement is the better way to describe what Ira was doing. I'll give my review slash contemplation. And we'll also have a post-pretty impact statement. But first, the discount store Dollar General has announced it will try a hostile takeover of its rival, Family Dollar. So we'll get Adam Davidson's two cents, including what this all has to do with rent-seeking behavior. Economics term. Pay attention. So there's a phrase, dollars to donuts, but that phrase is out the window. I want to talk about dollars to dollars, like Dollar Tree and Family Dollar and Dollar General. These are the three big dollar stores, and there have been rumors that one is merging with the other, or they're all going to merge, or none of them are going to merge. And what fascinates me about this entire conversation is underpinning it is uh, an assumption that what these stores bring to the economy and for consumers is a good. They're slightly different. So some of them really are 99 cent stores, and some of them, I think Dollar Tree, you get like part Party supplies there. Family dollars is more like canned 
goods. But the idea is cheap, affordable goods for lower class or middle class consumers is a really great thing for the economy. And yet when we say that about Walmart, you know, Walmart never gets that treatment. Walmart is always about they're paying their workers horribly. And the fact that they're able to offer these cheap goods is damaging to the economy. Well, whenever I have an economic conundrum or really life, social, uh, what tie to wear, I call on Adam Davidson, the founding editor of NPR's Planet Money. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. I wanted to ask you about that thing that I raised. Does it come down to how much of it is a good that we could offer very cheap goods to consumers and how much of those goods come at a cost? I think that Walmart is easy to focus on because we see Walmart... They're massive. It seemed to come out of nowhere and just explode everywhere. What they're doing is really abundantly apparent. It's in stark contrast to what we were doing before. Whereas Dollar General, these other dollar stores, which in reaction to Walmart had a different strategy where they tend to be closer to the town center. Mm -hmm. They tend to be kind of closer to the size of store we were used to before Walmart. They feel more familiar. Although the basic idea is the same. We're going to source manufactured products as cheaply as humanly possible and sell them with virtually no margin and make money on volume. I don't see the prime mover here as the companies at all. I think that the prime mover is, first of all, trade policy. So that's yeah. huge that we, we made you know, conscious decisions since the Kennedy administration to expand trade. And that's been a continuous you know, Democrat and Republican broadly shared embrace. But also technology is a huge, huge, huge factor. The ship containers, computer technology that allows for these massive warehouses, the robotic technology that allows for these massive warehouses. The efficiency of warehouses, keeping stock, keeping inventory in a way that's not just hoping people will buy uh, Glass Plus, knowing exactly how many people are going to want to buy Glass Plus. Exactly. And having the scanner technology that, like, you scan the fifth to last glass. We should be celebrating this. Innovative, intelligent, lowering costs to business, passing it on to consumers. That's all stuff that, you know, we celebrate. Clearly, America would be poorer if we went back to a system where each store is sort of sourcing things on their own. Mm -hmm. There'd be more pollution. There'd be more trucks on the road. There'd be more... Things would cost more for no major benefit. I think where the arguments against Walmart in particular, Mm -hmm. like that actual company, are strongest, are are twofold. So so one is what economists would call rent-seeking behaviors. But explain rent-seeking behavior, because this is a phrase if you follow economics, you hear all the time. Rent-seeking is I have hold of something that Mm -hmm. I control. So it could be land, it could be political power, it could be influence, and it could be simply I was the first company, like utilities, you know, I I was the first cable company to, to bring a cable to this neighborhood or whatever. And I'm now able to make money not by improving things, but simply because I have it and no one else can have it. So when they say rent seeking, who's doing the seeking? When Walmart's starting out, nobody's ever heard of Walmart. Walmart's just an idea in Sam Walton's brain. He's not rent seeking because he doesn't have that kind of power. So he's trying to beat the other guys. Let's just say fair and square. Yeah. At some point, Walmart becomes really, really big. And suddenly Walmart is the most important employer in lots and lots of areas. It has a lot of political clout. And it starts to realize, hey, we can make money not by being better and out-competing Kmart or Target or whoever, but by influencing zoning laws Mm -hmm. so that we get 
certain benefits that other retailers don't get. Or we have something of a monopoly power where we're so much the largest employer in town that we don't actually have to compete for wages. We can pay really, really lousy wages. But this is why the stuff about Walmart that we think of Walmart as really cheap shirts from China has a bit of hand-wringing going along with that, but generally you're saying, you know, this is a good thing, cheaper goods, it's the other stuff, they're not providing anyone a benefit, they're just seeking to make money just by the size of their bigness. And they're so big and so dominant that they can run themselves not particularly well for a very long time and cause pain along the way. And so to bring it back to our my original question, which was essentially why is Dollar General seen as something to preserve when it basically does what Walmart does and Walmart is seen as the enemy, your answer is actually Dollar General doesn't do what Walmart does. It doesn't have this rent-seeking behavior. So therefore, in general, when three competitors, when one of them wants to merge, should we worry about that a little bit? Should we look at that? I mean, three is the magic number, by yeah. the way. And there's actually, because of Walmart, there's now a lot of data on this. Like, economists can now look at scanner data, particularly from Walmart, Mm -hmm. and look at consumer behaviors and see, okay, if there's two major beer companies or two major dishwashing liquid companies or whatever, how does that market perform as opposed to when there's three or four or five? And generally, when you have two, it's fairly easy for two major players to without talking, keep prices higher than they should be, higher than the competitive rate, rent-seek together. Or like, you know, without talking, half of the displays in a supermarket will be for Pepsi and half of them will be for Coke, or they're alternate months. But you get that third player in there, ORC, they're a disruptor. Exactly. They're a price disruptor. You know, Coke and Pepsi will have this, like, long-standing, all right— a soda's a buck, yeah. and they come in and say, hey, we're going to go for 60 cents, yeah. and it messes everything up. So, yeah, the third player is a key one. All right, and one more question. If you could come up with a new phrase to replace rent-seeking behavior, what would better describe that phenomenon? Let me give a, a defense of rent-seeking yeah. as a phrase. It includes corruption, but it's not just corruption. It includes lobbying and the whole Citizens United stuff, but it's not just that. It includes things that are absolutely shady, and it includes things that are totally legitimate. The assumption is everybody wants to do. Like, if I came to you and said, hey, by the way, my cousin runs Congress and he's willing to pass a law that the gist is the only daily podcast and everyone has to listen to it, you'd be like, yeah, I kind of like that idea. That's good. So everybody wants to do rent seeking. So calling it like corruption or evil doing or collusion it's not quite right it's an inherent thing and everyone does do it to some degree like you and i in our own workplaces are trying to position ourselves you know branding is a form of rent seeking like coca-cola is not actually way better than some other caramel colored you know sugar drink but by creating this investment in brand it's able to capture the rents and then i also like that it's basically like you can actually look at everything and kind of say it's either productivity enhancing or it's rent seeking most things of any size or some combination of both but it, it's a mental frame that i have found incredibly useful to decide you know what's evil what's good how the how the world works what i should be for what i should be against so i was going to propose High school musical seeking behavior, but no, you're right. We're going to go with rent seeking behavior. Yeah, I don't see how high. I mean, that literally makes no sense. It's utterly irrelevant. It has uh, nothing uh, I said had anything to do with high school or uh, musicals. Although I will say, when I, I was just in, thinking of the musical rent and trying to come up with a competition, 
wicked-seeking behavior, showboat-seeking behavior. Oklahoma-seeking behavior. Yeah, there you go. Adam Davidson is the founding editor of NPR's Planet Money. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Squarespace is easy. It's simple. It's beautiful. Now, we always say at this point, there's drag and drop content. And I've been wondering if drag and drop content, if the phrase is a drag on the overall selling points of Squarespace, which are many, which are varied, which is that you can make a really good website on Squarespace and it couldn't be easier. But instead of drag and drop, I mean, neither of these words are really things with positive connotations. It's a drag, you know, I'm just going to just drop it or you drop to the ground. How about tug like at the heartstrings and to let go, man, just let go. You could tug and let go, tug and let go on that Squarespace design space, and then you'll have a really good website. Plans start at $8 a month. They'll throw a free domain name at you if you sign up for a year. In fact, you get to choose it. They don't just sign one randomly. There's an online store. Every site comes with an online store. So start a trial today with no credit card required. If you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST to get 10% off your first purchase. That also shows support for the GIST. They say, hey, all these people who like the GIST are demanding our tug and let go service. We thank Squarespace for their support of the GIST. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. People come to Emily Yaffe for advice. They don't know that they're going to Emily Yaffe. I mean, maybe they do. They think they're going to Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence is an institution. Dear Prudence is learned and wise and not afraid to tell it like it is. Hello, Emily. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm good. How are you? I'm well. So what we do on the show is once you give advice as Dear Prudy, you know, you got to wonder what happens. So we're answering that question. We're doing a post-Prudy impact statement now. And why don't you tell us about the person we'll be talking to today? Well, this is someone who wrote to me during the live chat and she labeled her question swinger boyfriend. Her boyfriend of six months is an ex-swinger, she said. He claims he's not participating in the lifestyle. He just goes online on swinger websites because he finds them humorous. Mm -hmm. This was concerning to her because her ex-husband was a swinger, and that ruined their marriage. And so she wondered, is she overreacting? Maybe he just has a very specific sense of humor, or is this relationship on a bad track. It's funny because Freud said there's no such thing as a joke. And he said that before he ever heard 8 billion people saying they were on a certain internet site, quote, as a joke. Yeah. I asked her if she met this guy at a support group for the exes of swingers or a support group for ex-swingers because swinging seems to be a theme running through all her relationships. And can't you just see this guy with, you know, his hat cocked to one side and a cocktail (laughs) saying ring-a-ding-ding? That's a funny one. Um, One more for the road. Yeah, and another one for the road. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I said if her husband had been an alcoholic and gee you know it's funny when I sit on the couch of my new boyfriend I find there are a lot of bottles stuffed in the cushions Mm -hmm. you'd say you you have a problem yourself I said this didn't sound good at all yeah she wrote back 
in the course of the chat, and I took another question from her. She said she had met him online. When she first met, she was up front about the reason for the dissolution of her marriage. He was not up front that he was an ex-swinger. Uh, but eventually he told her, and she said, so should I run screaming? I said, run screaming is optional. It's weird. What else, like what other behavior does that comport with, you know? Like, does it turn out that all swingers also love the electric light <laughs> orchestra and she puts that high up in her profile? <laughs> uh, fedoras? I don't know what it is. <laughs> all right, let's give her a call. You're nobody till somebody loves you. Or a lot of people. Yeah, until somebody and their husband. Hello. Hi, this is Mike and Emily, and we're calling for someone, and if this isn't you, don't be offended, swinger ex-boyfriend? Yes, that would be me. All right, thank God. Whoosh. Say, <laughs> say hello, Emily. Hi. So, Swinger, you wrote to me during the live chat and laid out your problem with your ex-husband, uh, who was a swinger, your current boyfriend, who claimed to be an ex-swinger who just found hanging out on swinger websites to be amusing. So what happened? What did you do? Um, well, actually, just a few days after I talked to you, I was over at the boyfriend's house and went to look something up on his computer. Uh, his email was open, so I took a look at it, and he was actually making plans for the weekend with a swinger couple. This is, now, this so. is a guy who's really committed to a good joke. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, he was very, very committed. I ended up breaking up with him that night. This is my ignorance, but if your ex-husband is a swinger, but you weren't a swinger, doesn't that just make him a guy who's cheating on you with multiple uh, partners? <laughs> that is what that means at the end of the day. Oh, okay. Did your husband try to say, hey, it would be more fun if the two of us dated other individuals or couples together and you said no or he was just freelancing this he, he was freelancing absolutely obviously the big problem with the boyfriend is that he really was a swinger and was lying to you but the fact that he hit it for a little while what do you think about that that was definitely a pattern of behavior where i just kept meeting these guys who like to pretend they wanted a monogamous relationship when that was actually not what they were after at all you're right so I'm not sure I would know how to go find a bunch of swingers to get involved with. So what, what was your, you know, this magnetism you had for them? I don't even know. I actually, when this guy had originally told me, hey, you know, I used to be a swinger, I almost broke up with him right away because I said, you know, I'm not interested in that. I've been down that road. And, you know, he tried to convince me that that was not part of his lifestyle anymore. I don't know, apparently he liked to have somebody to go places with and to introduce to his family. You know, it was a good cover for all the other things Jeez. he was doing that he wasn't so proud of. You know, I think a red flag is someone who has or had a lifestyle. That's probably <laughs> yeah. a warning. Anytime you call something the lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how long ago was this? Was your uh, discovery that the joke was not really a joke? That was 2011, so that was three years ago. Whoa. In the three years yeah. since, have you attracted, did, did the swing magnet get set to on? Have you attracted any more swingers? Has... No, actually, I have not. Funnily enough, um, right after I broke up with this guy, I emailed Emily, and I said, hey, you know what? You were right. Is this a cheater? Thanks for the advice. And she actually suggested that I look into some counseling to figure out why I was attracting these guys and sticking with these guys. And 
I ended up going to counseling within, you know, just a couple weeks of talking with Emily. That was probably a, a game changer with me. I realized that there was a pattern of behavior. There were some abusive relationships that I had never really dealt with. Mm-hmm. And so um, going to counseling was seriously the best decision that I had made for myself. And Emily, I actually need to thank you because it completely transformed my life. And that's not something I would have done if you hadn't have told me to. Well, thanks. But that was a pretty easy one. Okay, so that didn't take a lot of insight. But you know what? It is great to hear that counseling helped because obviously I suggest it all the time. (laughs) And I have this asterisk, go to a good counselor, don't go to a crazy one. So to hear that it really helped illuminate, okay, I have some part in this is terrific. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm currently not dating anyone, but I really did date a great guy for a couple of years and he absolutely no interest in more than one partner at a time. If there's someone else listening to this, obviously your circumstances are specific to you, but are there things that maybe they should look at if they find themselves attracting a certain type of guy that they don't want to attract and it's a consistent type? Uh, yeah, I definitely recommend, um, you know, I'm going to Take Emily's lead and recommend counseling. Short-term counseling can do wonders for lots of people just to help them figure out, you know, hey, what am I doing that maybe I need to stop doing? You know, like what's going on in my head? What kind of behaviors can I change? You know, because you can't change the other person, but you can always change yourself. Beautiful. Mm. I love that. So true. And I would tell anybody that Emily recommends counseling, like if a stranger who knows like just a little snippet of your life thinks that you need more help than what she can give you in an advice column, that you should probably look into getting some counseling and help for yourself. Well, thanks so much, Swinger Ex-Boyfriend. I almost feel, yeah, it is your ex-boyfriend, but you know, it doesn't define you. So ex-Swinger no, Ex-Boyfriend, maybe we'll say. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye. See, so sometimes the job of the advice columnist to tell them to talk to some more qualified expert, that's exactly what you need to be doing. Well, it was interesting that she hadn't even put that together or no one was saying to her, you know, you keep doing this. So I feel really good. Yeah, exactly. Well, I do too. It was another enjoyable chat, another illuminating post-Prudy impact statement with Emily Yaffe. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. I saw Ira Glass in a dance piece last night, which is one of those sentences like, I saw Diane Warwick win a lumberjack competition, or I just witnessed former Undersecretary of the Treasury Stuart Eisenstadt do bird calls. His double-crested cormorant was sublime. In fact, I think we have some of that right here. You're spot on. They sound troubled. But no, Ira danced. It's not quite Garbo Speaks or Brando Sings or Disney Unthaws, but it's something. In the show, Ira Glass, host of the public radio program This American Life, does what he does so well. He tells stories, he structures narratives, he conducts interviews, he amuses a live audience, and he does one thing he doesn't do so well. He dances. Now, if you go by the title of the piece, which I saw in New York's town hall last night, it's three acts, two dancers, one radio host. So there you'll get the impression that Ira Glass does not dance. That is a false impression. Ira, 
It is true. He's not one of the two dancers, in this case, Anna Bass and Monica Barnes, who take on old Vegas numbers, James Brown, and the song from a chorus line while balancing chairs on their chins. Actually, I was in the back row. I thought the chairs were on their chins. The chairs were actually in their teeth. But Ira, he does dance. Ira also presents some material about dance. At one point, he airs or auditoriums an interview with Anna about her collaborating with Monica as Anna is dancing next to Monica. So we're inside her brain listening to her thoughts as she's doing her thing. Imagine watching a sword swallower and hearing him narrate how he sword swallows, which he obviously could not do while sword swallowing because of the sharp steel protrusion in his esophagus. It was all very good stuff. It was classic This American Life storytelling married to an entirely different, at times seemingly contradictory art form. Of all the arts, writing is the least about the body, but after that, it's speaking. And since most of everything spoken in, say, the narration parts of a show like This American Life, since most of that is written, the two aren't even that dissimilar. Even painting has a bodily dimension. It's a big one. I mean, I can't draw for the same reasons that I have bad, fine motor skills, and it makes me inaccurate in throwing things like basketball. Dance is the most physical art form, or at least tied for first. There are great ideas in dance, but you can't express the ideas without a high degree of physicality. And the show itself was full of ideas, implicit and explicit. And one idea I had was about the idea of Ira Glass dancing. He trained for months. He's definitely gotten in great shape because of dance. But is he a dancer? I would say he is definitely trying to dance. Now, the trying in trying to dance is different from some other tryings, like trying to be funny. Wait, what? What do you mean? Oh, sorry, I was just trying to be funny. Trying to be funny is only said when you're not funny. But other kinds of trying to be, like I'm trying to be heard here, trying to climb this mountain, or trying to find a cure for polio, those sometimes can be said of a person who is actually being heard or climbing a mountain. Or in the case of Jonas Salk, that guy actually found a cure for polio. I'm trying to make a point here about the weird relationship we have with trying. On the one hand, we exhort our children to try harder. Try, try again. But on the other hand, we say, there's no such thing as trying, only doing. Or at least Yoda says something like that. Which gets me to Ira's effort. If he had been cast in, I don't know, a Broadway show, Camelot, and he knocked it out of the park in the acting department, but when it came to singing, he engaged in a little spiel like Rex Harrison, we'd say okay. And then during the dancing parts, if he showed that he knew the moves, we'd kind of put him in the back row. We wouldn't really hold it against him. We'd know he wasn't a great dancer. He remembered everything he needed to remember. We'd say he was game. And since this was in the service of an overall part, a part that existed before he breathed it into life, we'd say, you know what? He's a trooper. But in this case, I think what we say is, he's trying. And here's the value of trying. And I say this as a guy who sings, even though people literally unsubscribe from the podcast and give us one star ratings in iTunes and kill our entire overall ratings because I sing. The doing of something is 90% of the joy of it. The doing of it well is that extra 10%. But I think bringing the joy and bringing the joy in a place that you're uncomfortable with, there's a lot to be said for that. And I'll tell you what, I thought his half-dancer thing worked really well in the show. It showed the difference between a dancer, between Anna and Monica, and a guy who gave all his heart and really wanted to succeed. That point couldn't be made if Ira had just busted out a double maxi Ford followed by a paradiddle. Of course, the point that would have been made had he done that would be, holy shit, Ira Glass can dance! Which is a cool point indeed, though not the point of this show. The point of this show was... 
I think, what the hell? Ira's going to try to dance, and you're going to try to process what it means for Ira to try to dance. I liked it and would like to announce my world tour, Mike Pesca, Novice Knife Thrower, a journey of discovery through cutlery and wounds. You'll have to sign the release on the way out. And that's it for today's show. I'm putting this one right at the top. I want to talk about the LA Live Culture Fest. It's October 8th. The guests are the screenwriters Craig Mazin and John August of the Script Notes podcast. More guests are going to be added. There are tickets on sale at slate.com slash LA Culture Fest. Go see Dana, Steve, and Julia. They're great live. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of Slate Podcasts and is workshopping a one-woman show about eating a chicken. Well, it's really more her having lunch and eating a chicken. Andy Bowers is a nationally ranked calf roper as well as executive producer of Slate Podcasts. We are in SoundCloud. We are in iTunes. We are in Yo. If you go to the app Yo and download it and subscribe to Podcast, we'll let you know as soon as the podcast is up. Another way to do that is go to slate.com slash gist email, and then you can sign up for our daily email. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash slate gist. I'm on that almost every day. And our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. You know, they say writing about music is like dancing about architecture, but I maintain that concocting vivid metaphors about writing about the impossibility of writing about music is like creating a drop forged steel anvil using only tin tongs and a secondhand cadmium hammer. Think about it, and thanks for listening. Thank you.